Well, friends, ours is the hope of eternal life and resurrection because of Christ and Christ alone. On the solid rock of Christ and his merit, there is peace and there is rest and there is certainty. And so let's go to our good and faithful God. Now, as we will look to his word, we're in desperate need for him to come by his spirit and be our helper in this time. He is faithful to come and minister to us. So let's go to him now in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we don't take it for granted that we can call you Father. You and your grace through your Son have given us the spirit of adoption, not a spirit of fear, so that we can call you Father. We come, as has been stated several times already today, not in our own merit, not in our own righteousness, not because we deserve anything good from you, but we come covered in the blood of Christ, we come standing on his merit, and we ask that you would come now by your spirit and minister to us. None of us have come here this morning wanting this time to be in vain. We have come here this morning in desperate need of what only Christ can provide, and we've come in desperate need for you to meet with us. And so we pray that you would now as we look to your word. Give us ears to hear the truth, and eyes to see it, and give us hearts that would be receptive to it. We pray that we would rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, that we would rest in him. We pray that you would bring these things about us, about in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, we've been out of Mark's gospel now for two or three weeks. And as we return to the gospel of Mark this morning, just remember two major questions as far as what Mark is trying to do and what he's aiming to accomplish in writing his gospel. The first big question is, who is Jesus? That's the main one. I mean, that's the title of the sermon series for a reason, because that's the question that Mark is answering most fundamentally. Who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? And then secondly, it's a related question. What did he come to do? What's his mission? Who is he and what did he come to do? His person and his work. Those are the things that we've been considering together for several weeks, and we will, Lord willing, continue to consider for a number of weeks more from the Gospel of Mark. This is true in one sense for all of the Gospel writers. You get that. I get that. They're all writing from the perspective of redemptive history. They're not writing just a collection of anecdotes about Jesus. Right? They're not just writing to tell us some tidbits about his life. They're writing to help us understand who he is and what he did in light of the grand redemptive story of the Bible. He is rightly understood to be the center of the scripture. The Bible is preeminently and fundamentally about Christ. And it's in the Gospels that we get an account of his life and ministry. They certainly don't record, the Gospel writers don't, record every single thing he said or did but they record what we need to know from that perspective of redemptive history so that we can know that we know that we know that this man is no ordinary man. He is God the Son who's taken on flesh, who came to save God's people. When you make your way through the Gospel of Mark or any of the Gospels for that matter, it becomes clear pretty quickly that conflicts arise around Jesus regularly. A question could be asked in light of all of that conflict and all in light of all that rub that seems to constantly be happening around Christ and what he's saying, what he's doing. Why is that the case? Why is there always this conflict? Or maybe more pointedly, what is it exactly that Jesus goes after that creates all of this tension? What is in his crosshairs? Several things. This is not an exhaustive list, but we're going to continue to see this even in our text today. Christ regularly goes after and blows up legalistic religion. By that I mean conformity to some kind of code in order to attain eternal life. Legalistic religion. Christ repeatedly, time and time again, walks into a scenario that's filled with that kind of stuff. He sets the grenade on the table, pulls the pin, and there it goes. He also goes after moralistic religion, which is slightly different than legalism. 
He goes after this idea of obedience for favor with God. This idea of obedience for merit. He will go after that and explode that. It creates tension. It creates friction. And then finally, another thing that clearly is in his crosshairs is self-righteousness. We've considered this together, how gracious, how charitable, how kind, how compassionate Jesus is with people who come to him in need, who come to him knowing that they're in need. But then his posture is altogether different when he's engaging people who trust in themselves that they're righteous. His posture is different when he encounters people who think that they can achieve righteousness through their performance. He goes after these things again and again and again, and it creates conflict. It creates controversy. And we're going to see some of that conflict in our passage this morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. This is the fourth of a planned 22 sermon series in the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be looking today at Mark chapter 2 and verse 18 through Mark chapter 3 and verse 6. So that's Mark 2, 18 through 3, 6. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, don't sweat it. We will get the verses to the sermon passage up here on the screen and you can follow along that way. Before we begin to consider this text and what it says, what it means, we're going to read it together. So listen now as I read God's word for us, beginning with Mark 2, 18. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How? To destroy him. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. So we're going to make our way. I'm not really going to give you my outline ahead of time. I do that sometimes. I'm not going to do that today. We're going to make our way through this text, beginning with point number one. Point number one, we're going to give the heading, a conflict over fasting. Number one, a conflict over fasting. We're going to look at chapter two, verses 18 to 22 together for just a few moments. Put your eyes on verse 18. We see here that a question is asked of Jesus. They group comes to him, the Pharisees come to him and they say, or at least a group of Jews do, and they say, hey, look, the disciples of John the Baptist are fasting. The disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. Why is it that your disciples don't fast? It's important for us to realize that under the Mosaic law, fasting was required only one day a year. This matters for our conversation. One day a year was a fast prescribed and required by God, and that was on the Day of Atonement every year. Regular fasting, we know, had become common practice under the Pharisees. 
You can even think about the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18, where he will thank God that he's not like other men, and he'll say, I fast twice a week, for example, so that I'd become a thing, regular fasting as a part of godliness. So this is what prompts the question. This thing that we do, why are these people doing it and these people are doing it? Jesus, your disciples aren't doing this. What's up, man? So then Christ responds in verse 19. He says, look, I mean, it makes no sense for my followers to fast right now because the bridegroom is with them. He starts using this language of a groom and a wedding, a celebration. He says, why would they fast now? Verse 20, he keeps responding. He says, when the bridegroom is no longer with them, that is my disciples, it would be appropriate at that time for them to fast. You don't fast when you should be celebrating, right? There will come a time when fasting will be more appropriate. It's quite clear, just as a brief aside, that Jesus understands himself to be the long-awaited bridegroom of God's people, the promised one who would come. You can even think of John the Baptist's words in John chapter 3. John the Baptist says about Jesus, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This is who Jesus is. Think about Psalm chapter 2, or Psalm 2, I should say, where God's Son is promised that he will inherit a people forever. Think about Revelation 19, maybe most of all this great marriage supper of the Lamb that will happen at the end of history where God's people will be united with their Savior, with their groom. We will be united to Christ as a bride is to her husband. So this is the language that's even being used here by Christ. This is who he is. Jesus, it's clear, even here, certainly in this context for his disciples, and then in a general sense, contrary to what the Pharisees were doing, Jesus places no requirement for constant fasting as a rule of godliness, like the Pharisees had done. Now, fasting can, let's just talk about this for a moment. Fasting can be a very good spiritual exercise. Absolutely can be. And while Jesus does not prescribe it in terms of constant observance as a standard for godliness, he does talk to his followers about how it should be done. If you think about Matthew chapter 6, He'll encourage his disciples when they fast to not make a show of it. Don't be showy. Don't make a big deal about your fasting like the hypocrites do, he says. Act normally. Anoint your face, he says, so that you don't look haggard. It's like, you know, those, those kinds of situations. We all know, we can all do this, right? Where it's like you kind of put on the face so that you don't look so well. And it's like, hey, how are you doing, brother? How are you doing, sister? Well, I'm just, you know, suffering for the Lord. That kind of thing. Christ is telling his followers, don't do that nonsense. Look and act normal when you fast. This is something that you do before the Lord, right? So it's not that Jesus is anti-fasting, but he is also not prescribing it in the way that the Pharisees are practicing it. And he's saying, look, when you do it, do it this way. Let's move on to verses 21 and 22 and continue to consider the response that Christ gives. Because this is all a part of the same interchange. He goes on to talk about old and new garments and old and new wineskins. So let's think about those two illustrations for just a moment. In verse 21, he says, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does... The patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. I think we all can sort of understand this. Anybody in the room who's done laundry, right, who puts something in the dryer and it comes out and it's like, it looks like it was made for a toddler. It's like, what happened, right? Or your favorite sweater that used to fit you is now like six inches too short or whatever because cloth shrinks, right? So that's what Christ is saying. You don't take an older garment that has already been shrunk or shrunken, whatever the right word is, right, and put a new piece of cloth that hasn't been shrunk, Because if you sew it on there, and then when that new cloth shrinks, it's going to rip away the patch that you've put in. So he's just saying they're not compatible, right? Like they don't work together. The next illustration in verse 22, he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins. This is part of the fermentation process, right? As gases and things are continually released, it's important that new skins who have some elasticity to them are used for new wine. 
If you put new wine in old skins that have already been stretched in one sense, then the wine, if you fill it up, the wine is going to burst the skins. That's all Jesus is saying. Again, this you want to put new wine in new wine skins, you would put old wine in theory is already in the old wine skins. It doesn't work to put new wine in old skins. So what's he talking about in all this old and new? In a general way, he is talking about his coming and he's talking about the coming of God's kingdom. He's talking about the old order that was and the new order that now is. Now, I'm using those words on purpose. I'm using order and not covenant. Because I think, I think if you simply said he's talking about the old and new covenant, you would flatten this text in a way that's not helpful. And I'll explain that in just a moment. He's talking about the old order that was, the new order that now is. It's all because of him and his coming and the coming of God's kingdom. At this point, a couple of really important things for our understanding. So this is kind of like sub point one, two, like a couple of notes for us. So number one, Jesus has come to abolish legalistic religion. So these words matter. Jesus has come to abolish legalistic religion. And the second thing that we're going to consider is that he has come to fulfill the old covenant. You understand the difference? He's come to destroy and abolish legalistic religion. He has come to fulfill the old covenant. We're going to think about those things one at a time. So number one, he came to abolish legalistic religion. The Pharisees, we know from tradition, had placed many rules around the law of God. It's often what's referred to as putting a hedge around the law. So there was the law revealed by God in the Torah, and then the Pharisees with good intentions, right? Let's not impugn their motivations. With good intentions, added commands to that. They were like, okay, well, if this is what we're told to do, then let's put some more stuff around it to make sure that nobody breaks the law of God. That was the motivation. Theirs was, even with good motivation in many ways, a man-made religion. It had man-made traditions of man kind of stuff woven in with the law of God. Many who would have been a part of the, the Pharisees or certainly many who would have followed them would have been trusting in one sense with God's help in their own ability to keep the law. They would not have been looking outside of themselves to the Messiah who would keep the law for them. Right? They were looking to keep the law by God's help. You can even think again of the prayer of the Pharisee in Luke 18. He thanks God that he's not like other men. So these are not men who understand or women who understand that in their own effort without God's help, apart from any grace, that they're just doing this. They don't think that way. We ought not be too hard on them. By grace, with God's help, I'm going to obey the law. That's the thought. The question is, where are they trusting? Where are they looking? Where is their hope? Where is their confidence? So Christ came to abolish this kind of legalistic religion that would understand that in any way I can obey so that I might stand before God. But second, he came to fulfill the old covenant. Both of these things are incorporated in this old and new language. There's this old order according to the traditions of man taught by the Pharisees that I've come to destroy. And there's also this old order called the Mosaic Covenant, the Mosaic Law, that I have come to fulfill. This is the language he'll use in the Sermon on the Mount. I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. Christ is the first one to say that the law stands forever. He didn't come to do away with it. He came to fulfill it in the place of his people. It's important that we would understand in thinking about the covenants that God has made with his people through history. We'll talk regularly of the covenant God made with Adam in the garden that was a covenant of works where God told Adam, here's how you're going to live. Do these things and it will go well for you. Eat of that tree and you will die. We know that Adam transgressed that covenant. And then God in grace promised a redeemer in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. We understand that God's covenant of grace in time and space began there. And begins to unfold. He makes a promise to Noah that he's going to save his family when the flood comes. He makes a promise to Abraham that I'm going to make out of you a great people. He also makes a promise I'm going to make a nation 
a geopolitical nation out of you, but I'm going to make an eternal spiritual people out of you. He makes a covenant through Moses where he gives his people the law. He would make a covenant with David that one of your children will sit on the throne forever. All of these covenants find their fulfillment in the new covenant. As Christ comes and accomplishes the law, he keeps the law in the place of God's people. He is the better David. He is David's greater son. He will reign in righteousness forever. He keeps all of the conditions of the Mosaic covenant in the place of his people. When when God gave the covenant through Moses, he told them how they were to live. In one sense, he's fleshing out what the covenant of works looks like. Here's what I require. He's giving them those requirements. And the point of that law was always first and primarily to drive the people outside of themselves to a redeemer who would come. We even see this in the sacrificial system. We've thought about this before. In the regular everyday life of a Jew under the Mosaic Covenant, it would have looked like constant sacrifice. Constant. Well, what's that about? It's to teach them, to catechize them. You are a sinner. You haven't kept God's law. Atonement is required. Substitution is required. The day of atonement every year would teach them that your sin needs to be atoned for and taken away from you pointing them always through the sacrificial system to the Christ who would come. So this is what's going on when Jesus is talking about the old and the new order of things. He's not slamming the Mosaic law. The problem is not with the law. He's not saying, oh, that old order was bad and now this new order is good. No. The problem is with how people understood the law and related to the law. They thought, as I've already said, with God's help, that they could keep the law well enough to stand before the Lord. That's the problem. That's what Christ has come to do away with. A new era has dawned in redemptive history where it has become crystal clear that we are saved completely by Jesus, completely through faith in him. By faith, not works, right? Or more precisely, we should say, By faith in Jesus and his works, not ours. You see, works are required for salvation. This is again where the kind of covenantal framework of scripture helps us because God is a righteous God. He's a righteous judge who requires perfect obedience to his law. It had to be met. It had to be fulfilled. And so we are saved by perfect works, just the perfect works of the perfect one, not your works or mine. In our own works, in our own merit, we stand condemned. But in Christ, by faith, his perfect record is counted to us. His perfect law keeping is counted to us. My sin is counted to him. The death that he died is counted to me as though I died under the law to pay its penalty. The wrath of God that I deserve, Jesus took as my substitute. This is how salvation works. This is how it happens. This is what Christ has accomplished for all of God's people. In the old covenant era and the new covenant era, all of the promised children are those who are of faith. Faith in the promises of God realized in the Messiah. So it's appropriate for us to say. So we, we went through Galatians as a church not that long ago. It's appropriate that for all of the redeemed, we would look at one another and say, we are all children of Abraham. We are all children of Abraham. Amen. What does that mean? Galatians 3, 7. Who are they that are the sons of Abraham? He says it. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Jesus is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans 10, 4. With Christ's coming, a new era in redemptive history has dawned. The old is passing away and the new has come. Now, secondly, point number two, we're going to look at a conflict or actually multiple conflicts over the Sabbath. So we've thought about conflicts over fasting and what all that entailed. And just kind of this old era and new era, an old order and a new order. We're going to keep thinking in those terms as we look at two conflicts over the Sabbath. Put your eyes on verse 23 of chapter 2. 
We see here that the Pharisees confront Jesus about his disciples plucking heads of grain on the Sabbath. So we get the scenario there. They're walking through grain fields. The disciples are hungry. They're plucking heads of grain. They're eating them. The Pharisees in verse 24 say, hey man, like why are your disciples breaking the law? It's not all right for them to do that on the Sabbath day. It's important for us to remember again, this kind of hedge that the Pharisees had put around the law. They had a number of rules that pertain to the Sabbath day in particular. God had given some standards of what was acceptable and not on the Sabbath in the Torah, in the law. But then in addition to that, there were a number of other rules and regulations added to it. Lest anybody break God's commands, these rules would be kept. And in practice, to break one of these man-made rules was to break God's law. I mean, it was seen that way. So it's important that we understand that what Christ's disciples are doing. So Jesus is not coming and saying, I'm completely changing the terms of the Sabbath. That's not what he's saying. Not at all. It's important for us to understand that what Christ's disciples were doing is not breaking God's law. There was a provision made in the Mosaic law where people could glean if they were hungry, right? They could glean from fields. They could satisfy their hunger and their need. This is pointed out very clearly in Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 23 as well. Now, if the disciples had been doing agricultural work, they would have been in violation of the Sabbath laws that God gave. But that's not what they were doing. They were simply satisfying their hunger according to Mosaic law. But the Pharisees say, hey, you can't can't do that according to a rule that they had made. So then how does Jesus respond? Put your eyes on verse 25. He responds with an account of David eating consecrated bread from 1 Samuel 21. David is fleeing from Saul. He's on his way to the cave of Adullam, right? And he is hungry. He goes in to the tabernacle and he is going to ask the high priest, do you have anything to eat? And the only thing that's there to eat is the consecrated bread, the bread of the presence, right? This is not for anybody but the priest to eat under normal circumstances. Well, David is given that bread in order to fulfill his physical needs. That's what Christ appeals to. Have you not read what happened? Notice that Jesus appeals to Scripture in its right and appropriate understanding to show the Pharisees their error, right? He's like, you have not understood the Word of God the right way. You've not understood the law as you should. He's pointing them to the Scripture. Have you not read what happened with with David? What my disciples are doing is no different than that. What my disciples are doing is not breaking any law that God has given, though it may be a violation of your code as you see it. He states two things in verse 27 and 28. He says that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is important. This is kind of an illustration of a larger problem. The Sabbath was meant to what? Give rest. The Sabbath was meant to be life-giving. This is God's intention. Instead, in this economy, it had been turned into a burden. Something that was meant to give rest is now a burden. Something that was meant to give life is now life draining. The Pharisees, in other words, have missed the point of the Sabbath. The second thing he says in verse 28 is that the Son of Man, that's him, is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is certainly because he is God. You think that you have authority over the Sabbath to define it in its terms by adding codes to the law. You don't have that authority. That authority belongs only to to me as the Lord of the Sabbath. We're going to continue on into chapter 3 because this is another Sabbath day encounter. This time Jesus is entering a synagogue, place of worship, in the first century here. And there's a man there that has a withered hand, right? So this is not a life-threatening illness, but this is a debilitating thing. He's crippled. The Pharisees, we understand that the Pharisees are the they in verse 2. If you look at verse 6, you see that the Pharisees went out, right? After this whole encounter, the Pharisees go out and start to hold counsel about how to destroy Jesus. So, and they, in verse 2, we would understand to be the Pharisees. 
They watch Jesus. They, they see him come into the synagogue. There's this man with a withered hand. They're watching him. What's he going to do? Is he going to heal this guy? Because if he heals this guy, it's a violation of the Sabbath rules. They aim, we know, to accuse him, the end of verse 2. So their motivations are sinister. They're trying to trap Christ. Verse 3 and 4. Jesus calls the man over. He says, come here. And then he presses the onlookers, verse 4. He presses them as to what is lawful on the Sabbath. What is lawful on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to do good or to do harm? Is it lawful to save life or to kill on the Sabbath? They're silent. They don't know how to answer his question. And the point, again, that Christ is making is that the Sabbath is meant to give life. Right. The Sabbath is meant for wholeness. The Sabbath is meant for good. We're going to come back to that in a moment. Verse five. They don't know how to answer him. Right. They're silent. So Jesus looks around and he's indignant with their silence. He's angry. The text says he's grieved as well by the hardness of their hearts. And then in the second half of verse five, he heals the man. Stretch out your hand and he heals this man with a withered hand. The Pharisees don't like that. Verse six, we see that they immediately go and they hold counsel with the Herodians in terms of how to destroy Jesus. There's a great irony in this. The Pharisees in these encounters over fasting, over the Sabbath day, are really worked up with Christ because he is not abiding by their man-made tradition. And they, in holding counsel with the Herodians, a political group that supported the Herods in conjunction with the Romans, in doing that, they are acting in no way commensurate with how God would have told his people to act. So they're worked up with Jesus over breaking man-made rules. And then the irony is that they, in holding counsel with these people, are not living in a way commensurate with God's revelation. At this point, I've got a couple of, I guess a couple of points we'll call them, just for further consideration. We're going to try to dig in some more, go a little bit deeper with respect to a couple of things. So we've kind of had points one and two in the text. Now we've got a couple of points for further consideration. Number one, we're going to consider together for a few moments how the Pharisees codified a godly life. I'm going to say that again. How the Pharisees codified a godly life. So we've already considered at decent length what they did regarding fasting and the Sabbath. We're going to come to this idea, this theme again and again, maybe most pointedly in Mark chapter 7. We're going to see Christ dealing with the Pharisees and others regarding their traditions, right? that they're teaching as doctrine. But in this dust up over fasting and over the Sabbath, how does Jesus react to all of it? I'm just going to kind of paraphrase what Christ has said in our passage today. In one sense, he's looking at his fellow Jews, and he's saying, you've, you've got things pretty wrong here. You've turned fasting into something it's not. Right? You're requiring it where the law doesn't. You've turned it into a standard of godliness that has never been revealed in God's word. Not that fasting is bad, but it's not meant to be used the way you're using it. Right? You think the Sabbath is an end to itself. It's not. It's for your good, actually. You have so codified your lives and your hearts are so hard that you don't know whether it's wrong for people to go hungry on the Sabbath and you don't know whether it's right for a man to be made whole on the Sabbath. In other words, synopsis, you have missed the point. So friends, again, I think sometimes... We are entirely too hard on the Pharisees. We tend to see ourselves in all the wrong places in the Bible, right? Let's be real for a minute. 
we tend to see ourselves in the kind of protagonist characters. We tend to not see ourselves in the antagonist characters. We tend to just kind of pile it on the people that are being corrected as though you know, we, we certainly aren't them. This is where we need to talk honestly with one another for a moment. We ought not think that we are immune to this kind of thing that the Pharisees were doing. In our current church context, and this has been this way for a while, but even in our current moment, there is a tendency, no doubt, to codify things to death in the church. I mean, yes, it was happening 2,000 years ago in first century Judaism, absolutely. But it happens in the church today. The codification of the Christian life also ends up being an exercise in missing the point. How so? It's good to talk about, and we'll think about this in a minute, it's good to talk about wisdom, it's good to talk about common sense, it's good to talk about things that are good for us to be doing. But we are so prone to taking good things, good advice, and turning them into doctrine. We turn them into a standard that people have to measure up to if it's going to go well for them. And the problem with all that is that it pulls people away from a simple life of faith in Christ and reliance upon the Holy Spirit. That's prescribed in the New Testament. Trust Christ, hope in Christ, abide in Christ. Absolutely concern yourself with obedience. Do that in reliance upon the Holy Spirit. It's not overly complicated. Jesus and trusting him is always at the heart of the matter. And any code that takes the focus off of Jesus and puts it on everything that we need to be doing is harmful and not helpful. Again, the issue is focus, right? What's at the center? What's in the foreground? Is it us or is it Christ? That's the question. So in other words, here I'm going to say this. I put this up on social media for those of you who are savvy in those areas and have already seen it. I guess I stole my own thunder. One way I would encourage us to think about it as a church is with this sort of phrase and formula. Don't trust your Christian life. Trust Christ. Do not trust your Christian life. Trust Christ. Now, again, we've said this many times. Look at your life. Be encouraged by the fruit that you see. Talk honestly. Assess honestly the ways that you fail to obey. And at the same time, never trust in your obedience, ever. Trust Christ alone. Sometimes in this context where Christ is heralded and we're constantly being pointed to Jesus and we're told all the time, like, it's done, it's over. The work of redemption is finished. There's nothing that you can add to it. Look to Christ, trust him, rest in him. There's this season of time where people are a little bit disoriented. It's kind of like a moment of weightlessness where you're like, like really, bro? Like, there's nothing that, that I can do. Well, so what should I do? What should I do? Help me. That's a great, I love having that conversation as a pastor. When people look at me and they're like, okay, so I think I'm understanding the gospel. And now I'm just wondering, what, what should I do? And I look at them and I tell them, you know, brother, sister, the great irony here is that you're going to continue basically doing the same stuff. Just the motivation is going to be completely different, right? The heart posture is going to be completely different. You've actually got the horse pulling the cart, right? The Holy Spirit resting in Christ is what's pulling you forward in the Christian life rather than it being all about your effort. The pastors, I can speak for Ron, are always, I just want to reiterate, we are always happy to talk practically about anything that you would ever want to talk about. Questions like, hey, how should I think about reading my Bible? How should I think about prayer? Like, what's some good stuff I can be reading? Hey, what's some good music? Like, I'm wanting to learn some new music that's just solid theologically. What, what's out there? What are some good things that I can be doing with my kids? But we're always happy to talk about that stuff. Always. Now, disclaimer, when you come to us and say, Pastor, how do I grow in the faith? Absolutely every time without fail, I hope, we're going to say these things first. Well, first of all, trust Jesus. 
Keep looking to Christ. Second, rely upon the Holy Spirit to work in you to sanctify you. Third, do the very simple things of applying the ordinary means that God has given us over the course of a lifetime. Show up here on Sundays. It's word. It's Lord's table. It's prayer. It's song. Right? It's church. It's people of God. This is what's going to change you over the course of your lifetime. So we're always going to say that first. And then it's like, yeah, we're happy to talk about that practical thing you're wondering. You want a good book to read? I've got, I've got a whole shelf of them I can recommend. You want to talk about Bible reading? We can talk about that in all kinds of ways that are good. We're always happy to recommend things. We're always happy to give good advice. And I pray that we're always clear that that's what we're giving you. In those moments when we're talking about wisdom, I pray that we never talk as though we are revealing God's word to you because we're not. There's differences between thus saith the Lord and here's your pastor's good idea, right? And it's important that we understand the distinction in how we live and how we counsel. So you can even pray for us in them. So that was sort of item number one for further consideration, how the Pharisees had so codified a godly life in a way that was unhelpful. And we have a tendency to do the same. And we pray that we would not do that here at CBC. But second point for our deeper consideration and wrestling. So not only is Jesus Lord of the Sabbath, he fulfilled the Sabbath for his people. And in that sense, Jesus is the Sabbath for his people. I'm going to try to unpack this. So number two, you can just put Jesus is the Sabbath for his people. He is rest for his people. Think of his words that are famous in Matthew chapter 11, where he says, come to me. Who does he say? Come to me. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, just brief aside, I know that, that I lived in a church context for a long time, maybe many in the room as well, where reading that verse and then thinking about my life in the church, they didn't jive. It's like Christ says, come to me and I'll give you rest. And it's like, man, I feel like I'm on a treadmill, like all the time, like, like can't ever do enough, you know, because that's what I'm being told is it's, man, you got to, it's all about what you're doing, man. And so I would just think, man, it's supposed to be restful. This is not that, you know, maybe others have had that experience. If you haven't, praise God. But many of us have lived in a church context where we have been repeatedly pointed inward. We're repeatedly pointed inward. We're pointed to our performance or we're pointed to our feelings about Jesus. You're wrestling with assurance. Well, how do you feel about Christ? It's like, well, it depends on the day. Like in terms of how my affections are, they ebb and flow. You're struggling with assurance. Well, how's your obedience? It's like, well, not that good. That's part of the reason I'm struggling. This is how with good intentions in the church, sometimes with struggling saints, we meaning well just kind of pile it on. Because in that context, our assurance and our peace is tethered to how we're performing or how we're feeling on any given day. And you don't need me to tell you that that's sinking sand, right? Take the godliest person in here, if we can even talk in those terms. I think that's kind of foolish generally to talk about godliness like we would a kid's height against the wall. But this is just how we think, right? So like take the godliest person in here. And that person with any measure of self-awareness is going to be the first person to say, there is no way in the world that I can have assurance and peace before the Lord if it hinges at all on my performance or on my affections or my feelings. No way. It's sinking sand. And the bottom line, in thinking about Jesus as our rest, when we are always pointed inward, it's exhausting. It's, it absolutely beats the saints to death. So I don't know how many in the room are runners or cyclists or anything like that, or maybe you've, I mean, you've at least run or ridden a bike. So you know how sometimes you're driving down the road and you think that the road's flat, right? It's, it's just flat. And then you start running in that same stretch of road. Or you start cycling in that same stretch of road. Everything seems fine, right? It's like, but you, you're like, man, I, I'm dying here. Like, I just can't get any, like, what's going on? You know, it's because there is this almost imperceptible 
grade that we're climbing. I'm using this as an illustration of how the church feels for many people. Christ is preached. It's not that Christ isn't preached. Christ is preached. His person, his work, trust Jesus, that's preached. But then the way of life in the church and where we're often pointed, again, how am I performing? How's my obedience? How are my affections? All that. It ends up putting us in this scenario where we look around and it's like everything seems fine, but I am flat out exhausted. Like I am absolutely worn out in this thing called the Christian life. There's always, in that kind of context, there's always more to do. Things can always be done better. So there's no rest for the weary saint. But consider the words of Christ, or excuse me, the work of Christ, not words, work of Christ. That K versus that D, it'll mess you up every time in your notes. Consider the work of Christ from Hebrews chapter 10. So just listen. You don't need to flip there. You can write this down. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. But just listen to the word of God with respect to what Christ has done. And we'll talk about it and consider it for a moment. <clears throat> and every priest, <clears throat> excuse me, stands daily <clears throat> at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And then this, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That, that, that again, I know I said this last week, that's a refrigerator verse, man, like a real one. It's not catchy, it's not cute, but it is life-giving and life-sustaining. How? The takeaway from that verse, when you think about it for just a moment, is thank God for Jesus, right, and what he has accomplished for me. We have been perfected, it says. Jesus has seen to it that we have been perfected for all time through what he has already done. And at the same time, we are being sanctified. Right? This is massive. So the work is over, right? Christ has done the work. Your sanctification and your salvation and mine are certain because of Christ. So now, what does that mean for life? What does it mean for godliness? It means that we constantly are heralding Christ. We're constantly pointing people to Jesus. Look to him. Look to what he has done for you and rest there as you are being sanctified by God's Holy Spirit working in you. Look to Jesus. Rely upon the Holy Spirit as you do things that seem ordinary. You are being sanctified. Romans 8.29 that comes after the famous verse, Romans 8.28. Romans 8.29, equally glorious. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Smoke. Like, we're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. And it's certain, not because of us, but because of the Lord who works through us by his spirit. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is certain. This is how we can look at our lives honestly and assess ourselves according to God's word and realize that we fall far short still all the time. Like there are all these ways that I need to grow. Like I'm not, I'm not very mature there and I'm pretty weak there and I'm not very godly there. And I know those things about myself, but I need not worry I trust Christ who's finished the work. I rely upon the spirit. I do these ordinary things. And then over the course of years and decades, I look up and it's like, whoa, I'm not like I used to be. But it's not this constant crisis over how am I performing today? How am I feeling today? I stand on the solid rock of Christ and his merit and therefore I have rest. And I know sometimes this is 
this is kind of near and dear to my heart. Sometimes people raise the question like, well, brother, if the main point of your sermon every Sunday is Jesus, is like, shouldn't you be saying other stuff? And of course I'll say, I am saying other stuff. But if the main point of your sermon is Jesus, bro, like, don't you need to say more than that? Again, acknowledging that we will say more than that. I'm reminded of a quote by Andrew Fuller, who said this, if you preach Christ, you need not fear for want of matter. His person and his work are rich in fullness. To which I would say, amen. Like this is kind of just a reinforcement for us that what we need when we gather is Christ every Sunday. And that trusting in Christ and resting in Jesus actually propels us forward in the Christian life. It seems counterintuitive. Well, how, how does resting propel me, brother? It's because it's supernatural. That as you rest in Christ and rely upon the Spirit, you are propelled forward in the Christian life. Faith in Jesus, resting in Christ, is what will sustain you. Not your effort, not your feelings, right? This is why Jesus will reiterate in a number of places during his earthly ministry. He bids his people to come to him. He bids us to come and what? Drink of the water of life without payment. He bids us to come to abide in him. Come hope in me. He bids us to come and rest in him. Come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He is the rest for his people. Thanks be to God for Jesus. And so let's go to the Lord now and pray. We need to pray after the sermons, just like before. And we're going to prepare ourselves now, too, to take of the Lord's Supper. We'll think about that in just a moment. But let's ask the Lord to continue ministering to us by his spirit through these means that he has given us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to you still acknowledging our need for you to minister to us. We thank you for your word. We thank you most of all for Christ who has come to accomplish redemption for us, to fulfill the old covenant in our place, and to offer us rest that simply by faith in him, we have been counted righteous. And that it is not about our works, but his works. And therefore we can know peace before you. We pray that as we look to the Lord's table now, that you would continue to sustain faith and strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus. We pray that we would be reminded and convicted of sin as is necessary, that we would confess those and know that we have been forgiven and cleansed of all unrighteousness in Christ. We pray that you would keep conforming us to the image of Jesus, which you have promised to do. We pray that we would rest and hope in that promise this morning as well. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.